Good evening to you. My name is Ike. Welcome to Hope Denver. Oh my gosh, whenever Scott has to preach before me, I'm thinking like, oh, how am I going to follow this, you know? Pastor Scott, you're awesome. And you can give him a hand for that. I don't know where he went, but you can give him a hand. he's awesome. So I'm glad you're here. Tonight, we're going to get back to our series called Perspectives. Perspectives. In this, what we're doing is we're looking at kind of conventional wisdom in our culture. Conventional wisdom. These things can be embodied in sayings, in the kinds of things that we tell ourselves. The, what I want to talk about tonight is, are some kind of cultural, uh, cultural sayings that we have. That these sometimes will be wisdom that we would offer to somebody else in a difficult time. It might be even things that we tell ourselves when it comes time to make a difficult decision or when we have some kind of conflict in the world around us. These are slogans and sayings. These are, in this series, what we're looking at is our biases and presuppositions. You know, the, the way that you talk to yourself tells you a lot about what your biases and presuppositions are, right? The, the, the things that you mention to yourself and the inputs that you have in your life, how you think, these things change who you are. Uh, and so we're going to examine four different slogans in this series. And the first one we already talked about, this was a couple of weeks ago, it was speak your truth. You guys remember this one, speak your truth? If you didn't, it's in the podcast, you can check it out. Uh, I'm not going to be sad if you haven't heard it yet, but go and check it out. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is actually a, a philosophy called postmodernism. And I think there's some things that we can take away that are very helpful uh, from this idea of speaking your truth, but also some things that are really confusing and actually ultimately problematic Tonight we're going to talk about this saying, to each his own or to each her own. Uh, th- we're going to talk about that tonight. Follow your heart, that's next week. This perspective tells you that how you feel in the moment is the most important thing in the world. And the last one is, that w- is the idea of we can change the world. This is the idea that the world is becoming a better and better place all the time. All we need to do is to band together, get on the right side of history, and things will be fine. Um, so we're talking about these, and really... Ultimately, I'm going to be a little critical of some of these cultural sayings, but in all of them, there is some truth. There's some truth, and, uh, you know, there are some things that followers of Jesus need to accept about the culture around us, culture around us, and some things that we need to reject and push back against. Um, uh, And when we do push back, I hope that what we're learning to become are people who are more kind, who are respectful, who have goodwill, and are able to treat people uh, with, with goodness, even if we disagree with them. But I think that we'll find that when we look at these various perspectives in the culture around us, we'll find that there's a deep need and a deep desire that only Jesus can fill in people's lives. So tonight, to each his own. To each his own. I, I hope you don't mind. Tonight, since I'm going to be critiquing this perspective, I'm going to use the masculine voice on this the whole time. I hope you'll forgive me for that. But this is similar to speak your truth uh, we, that we discussed a couple weeks ago. Uh, and this idea, to each his own, makes a lot of sense in a couple of cases. If I like New Belgium and you like Odell, to each his own, right? Uh, if you like The Office and I like Parks and Rec, you know, that's fine, no problem. Uh, if I'm an Avalanche fan and you're a St. Blue, Louis Blues fan, that's right, yeah, we're good, we're fine, you know. But I think we could probably all agree that the Detroit Red, Red, Red Wings are the worst. Right, we, we'll, we'll find our common ground there. But all this stuff actually starts to get a little bit trickier when you talk about things like greed or racism, uh, when you talk about terrorists. Uh, in those cases, maybe to each his own isn't very helpful. 
See, what our culture has is a tacit acceptance of something called moral relativism. Can you guys say relativism? Thank you very much. Yeah, moral relativism. Broadly, this is the idea that what is moral differs from culture to culture or perhaps from person to person. What is moral differs from person to person or from culture to culture. We're going to talk more about this later, but here's what our focus will be for tonight. Moral relativism reveals actually this, this deep human need for objective moral justice that only God can bring. See, moral relativism ultimately fails, and I'm going to talk about that tonight. But in its failure, relativism reveals this deep need that only Jesus can fill. And it's a need for objective justice that only God can bring. So tonight, if you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Judges, chapter 21. If you're new to the Bible, Judges is about a quarter of the way through the Bible. It's in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, and we're going to look at, at uh, Judges chapter 21. Now, what we're going to look at tonight is a very sad story. Uh, this story does not get better at the end. You can expect it to get worse, just so you know. Uh, brace yourself for that. But we're going to look at a particular time in the history of God's people. And God's people is Israel. And in this particular time, people were practicing moral relativism. This is the way that people were living their lives during this time. The people of Israel were living out the principle to each his own. And the Bible describes it like this. This is from Judges 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. See, moral relativism's failures, is, it will reveal to us a deep need for objective justice, objective moral justice that only God can bring. Let's pray. God, we open up our hearts to the scriptures tonight. And even if we have some concerns about what we're about to hear, we want to have hearts that are open to hear from God. Some of us tonight may be wondering if you even exist. And tonight we just open our hearts up to you. If you agree with that, just say, yeah, God, my heart's open. I'm willing to learn something. I'm willing to listen. Those of us who, who would already say we're followers of Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us tonight and teach us. Help us to defend and commend the Christian faith with love, respect, and care for people that, we, that maybe disagree with us, always knowing that we represent Jesus everywhere that we go, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. See, moral relativism's failures reveal this deep need for justice. And me saying this, it could sound sort of intolerant uh, when, I, when I push back against another worldview or another perspective. But consider this. If another perspective is actually really damaging, if it's hurting people, then it would be unloving or, or in, in some ways uncaring to push back, to not push back. Does that make sense? If I keep silent when people are hurting themselves, then I'm kind of complicit in their suffering. So yeah, I hope you understand that even though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some philosophical reasoning tonight, I may sound like I'm, I, I know what I'm talking about, please don't betray that for arrogance. The, the Christian perspective on reality is not, hey, we're so great, we figured out the truth. It's that God is so good and he's spoken to us and we're just grateful recipients of his goodness to us. But moral relativism, this perspective is deeply problematic what we're looking at tonight is the, the book of Judges, chapter 21. And I'll give you a little context for this, because there's a lot happening in this story. So is it okay if I just kind of like set the stage for you here? So the stage is this. It's Iron Age Israel. And all of a sudden you're thinking, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Iron Age Israel. This is about a thousand years before Christ, a thousand BCE. Uh, and at this, at this time in, in Israel, they didn't have a king. They didn't have any centralized leadership. In fact, at this time, uh, the way that, that kind of authority worked in their culture is that from time to time, 
during some kind of cultural crisis, there would be somebody who would emerge as a kind of judicial and religious leader. The Bible calls these people judges. And these people would lead God's people through a crisis, and then the judge would die, and they wouldn't pass on their authority uh, in the way that a king would to, to, uh, to his heirs. They would have a judge, the judge would die, and it'd be over. And they would lead people through crises this way. See, what God had meant was for himself to be the leader of his people. You see this in, in the Torah or the Pentateuch. These are the first five books of the Bible. That God kind of sets himself up as the king of Israel. In fact, scholars, when they read the first five books of the Bible, what they see is actually a type of literature that was called a suzerain vassal treaty. And this was a treaty where a king would set up the terms of his kingship to his kingdom. And when you read the first five books of the Bible, it has the markers of this kind of treaty where God is saying, I'm your king, and this is what it's going to be like if I'm your king. Here are my responsibilities to you and your responsibilities to me. These kinds of treaties were common in the ancient world. But what was uncommon about them was that you typically didn't have a disembodied deity, a God in heaven who is saying, this is what it's going to be like. Typically, it would be a king who had conquered a people, a human, who was kind of saying, here's, what it's gonna, here's what's going to happen if you're going to be my people. But in this case, uh, God is saying, I'm going to be your king. But of course, at this time, there was no human king in Israel. And later on, the children of Israel had human kings. Some were good. Most were actually pretty awful. Uh, when, you read, when you read the Old Testament, you see that. But g- the problem was is that God wasn't really the king in people's hearts in Israel. That's the key issue is that God wasn't actually living as a king in their hearts. He wanted to, but it's voluntary, right? I mean, if you're going to uh, acknowledge God, it's a voluntary thing. Um, and so that's why the Bible says this summary statement, and this is from Judges 21 again, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. God was not their king. See, God had given them laws, but they weren't living as if God was their king. So here's an example, what we're going to read tonight. Here's an example of what happens when people live out the principle to each his own. This, is, this happens in the latter chapters of the book of, of Judges, and I'll, I'll kind of give you a, a recounting of what happened. There was a man from the tribe of Levi. There were 12 tribes in Israel. This man was a part of one of the tribes called Levi. Now, he had a second wife. Uh, uh, this, this kind of polygamy was common in the ancient world. He had a second wife who cheated on him left him, and after she had, had committed adultery with another man, went to live with her father. And this man, out of compassion and love for his wife, goes after her. He wants to bring her back, and he convinces her to return with him. And, and so he's at, he's at her father's house, and, and the father agrees, yes, go back, this is your husband, and, and they go back to, uh, they leave to go back to, to this Levite's home. But as, as this man leaves, as he goes home with his wife, his wife is raped and murdered by some people from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, 12 tribes. These people in the tribe of Benjamin murder her, rape her and murder her. Now, all of Israel, the rest of Israel, they hear about this. News of this story gets around. And in an assembly of leaders, remember, there was no centralized authority, but the leaders get together, leaders of each tribe and clan, they get together at a place called Mizpah, and they say, what are we going to do about this terrible injustice that's happened uh, around us? They want to bring the Benjamite offenders to justice. Remember these people from the tribe of Benjamin. So this is an awful story, right? But so far, it seems like, you know what? Maybe things are going to 
at least there'll be justice at least at some point. But what happens is that the tribe of Benjamin refuses to turn over the guilty parties. They refuse. And this was actually a kind of act of war. It was saying, if you want them, you can come and take them by force. We're not going to give them up. And so Benjamin kind of declares war against the rest of Israel. Remember, they were 12 tribes, but one of the tribes just rebelled. It's a civil war. And so the, the tribe of Benjamin now becomes complicit in these acts of rape and murder. And so Israel asks God, what, what should we do? And God says, you have, you have to have justice. You have to bring these people to justice. So they go out to war against Benjamin. Now, there's a theological undertone in the story, and I hope you're hearing it from me. It's this idea that God wants justice against rapists and murderers, and protecting rapists and murderers means that you're complicit in the act itself. If you're protecting somebody who's guilty, you're also guilty in a way. So Israel and Benjamin meet each other on the battlefield. Israelites actually very quickly defeat the Benjamites in war. Now, as they defeat them, there's 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin. Thank you for sticking with me. I know this is like a lot of background. There's 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin who, are, who, who survive the battle. Only 600. They survive the battle, and they, they flee into the wilderness. But here's when things start to get really out of hand. The Israelites, in violent rage and in this desire for justice that's gone haywire, they go to the Benjamite towns, and they kill all the women and children and animals. They kill everybody. This is not what God told them to do, but they go way overboard and, and have this terrible, incredible injustice. The vengeance of the Israelites far outweighs the crime. God didn't tell them to exercise this kind of violence. In fact, in God's law in the Torah or the Pentateuch, there was actually limits on the kind of vengeance that you could have. You couldn't do stuff like this, but they do it all the same. So now we're at the end of this civil war. There's 600 surviving people from the tribe of Benjamin, all men. No women, no children. What we're going to talk about again tonight, our focus is that moral relativism's failures reveal the deep human need for objective moral justice, not subjective violence or rage, but objective moral justice that only God is in a position to bring. So let's look at, at chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? See, and here we learn something new that happened during the Civil War. During the Civil War, the people of Israel actually made this crazy oath, saying, we will never give our daughters in marriage to Benjamite men. So remember, there's 600 surviving men, and they're saying that essentially that these men will never have heirs and children of their own. The people of Israel, in their rage, take this hasty oath, dooming the tribe of Benjamin to extinction. It's a kind of genocide in a way. So they go overboard. They destine the Benjamites to die off. But then they come before God and they ask him why, why Israel would lose one of its tribes. How could you let this happen? See, this is crazy because the Israelites make this hasty oath, but then they go into co and complain to God about this. Have you ever noticed in yourself this kind of thing? That you make a mistake and then you go and complain to God about it? See, often when we come to God, we're complaining about things that are really our own fault. And we were the cause of them. And that's exactly what's happening to the Israelites right here. Sometimes we're suffering because we failed to recognize our own sin. 
That's what these, these people, they didn't realize, hey, this is because of us. This is our fault. Look at verse 4. Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? They're wondering, hey, when we went out to war, were we missing anybody from our tribes and clans? That's what they're asking. For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to, put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites, Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. So the people of Israel, they're in the middle of their sinful mistakes, and they actually come to worship God. You know, it's possible for you in the middle of the mess of your life and me in the middle of the mess of mine for us to still come and worship God. You can actually be in deep personal rebellion to God and still try to come and worship him. That's what they were doing here. These Israelites were all out of hand, but they came to worship God. And that's why the scriptures actually tell you to examine yourself and to confess your sins to one another. These kinds of practices of self-examination, of confessing your sins to one another, it helps you so that when you come before God, you're not in a place of rebellion. The scripture actually warns us against these kinds of things. But it turns out that the Israelites had made another hasty oath. The first one was that they said that we're never going to give our daughters in marriage to these men. The second one is that they said, if anybody didn't help us kill all of the Benjamites... We're going to kill all of them. I mean, this is getting really out of hand here. But what you're seeing here is deep regret. These people were bound by their oaths. It's the culture. That's the culture they lived in. But they're now seeing all of the ramifications for what they did. They don't want a whole tribe of Israel to be lost. Look at verse 6 again. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and to put to the sword those living there including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. So these people are in Israel, they're, they're grieving for this tribe of Benjamin. They don't want it to die off. So they try to find a way around their oath. Did you notice this? They made this hasty oath. They don't want this tribe to die off. They're trying to find a way around the oath to not give their daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. If you're starting to see how women in this story are treated like property, how they're voiceless, this is exactly what happens when people start to practice the principle to each his own. In this world, when people practice the principle to each his own, women and children are often the first people who suffer because of it. This is exactly what happens when you have moral relativism gone awry. So they go and kill all the people of Jabesh Gilead, except for 400 virgins. Jabesh Gilead, this was part of a half-tribe called Manasseh. It was one, one group of people who failed to assemble with Israel to go and fight the Benjamites. They take away their virgin women, 400 of them, and they give them to the surviving Benjamites. But if any of you are good at math, you'll, re- you'll recognize that there were 600 survivors in the tribe of Benjamin. 
and there's only 400 virgin women here. So there's 200 men that are still going to be cut off. That means that they couldn't pass on their land to the next generation. That means that they couldn't pass on their family name and their heritage to people. This would have been a problem if you're trying to end a civil war. Look at verse 13. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Ramon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh-Gilead who had been spared, but there were not enough for them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. See, they want to conclude a peace treaty, so they send for the Benjamites who come and take their women. But there are not enough women for all of them, and the Israelites, they made this hasty oath so so that there's 200 of these Benjamites, they basically are getting a death sentence for their family lines. This would have been unacceptable. And this is what happens when your stubbornness and mine get out of control as well. Because these people had made these ridiculous oaths, But they were being true to themselves, right? They were sticking with their oath. They were doing what their culture demanded. If you make an oath, you stick to it to the death. So what are they experiencing? They're experiencing the judgment of God. That's what they're experiencing. God is just in his judgments, and he often lets you experience the consequences of your sin. God does that. God's willing to get your attention, When you're sinning, God will sometimes use your circumstances to remind you, hey, you're in rebellion here. Things are hard for you right now because of your choices. And again, God would be unloving if he never let us have the consequences of our rebellion against him. He's trying to get their attention here. So what do we need to do? When we find ourselves in rebellion against God, we need to turn back to him. We need to repent and turn to God and ask him for his forgiveness and ask him how we can be obedient in the future. Look at verse 16. The elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel won't be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives, since we Israelites have taken an oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is an annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. So it gets worse. In addition to the murder and the trafficking of women that has already taken place, the elders of Israel actually sanction kidnapping, rape, and forced marriage of 200 more women of Israel, whose families had nothing to do with the problem. They had nothing to do with this problem. And of course, it just gets worse and worse. Look at verse 23. So this is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So the the civil war is over, and the Benjamites and the rest of Israel, they feel satisfied. Now, there's a way that this passage actually, it reads a little bit like a resolution right here at the end, as if to say, you know, all these terrible things happen, but all is well that ends well. But the last verse is actually incredibly haunting. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is what happens when God is not the king. 
When God is not your king, this is the kind of stuff that happens. See, the people of Israel, they even pay God lip service. In the whole thing, they come to worship God. They, they bring in burnt offerings, and they say, they say that, that we love God and we want to worship him. They even ask him for his advice at one point. You know, people of God, we can actually get kind of good at this. From time to time, we can come and offer lip service to God, but our hearts are far from him. We can actually be in deep rebellion against God, even if we're trying to offer him something. And if you're honest, you'll see the kind of hypocrisy in Israel. You'll see maybe a little bit of it in yourself, too. So let's talk about this, this slogan, to each his own. To each his own. This is something that, that is, called, is called relativism. And I want to talk with this, this first idea, this individualized personal relativism. This idea is the notion that, that what is moral differs from person to person. What is moral differs from person to person. This is actually very common in our culture for people to say, hey, look, what's right for me may not be right for you. You know, everybody's different to each his own. What's, what is moral is different from person to person. This is problematic for many reasons, but I'm just going to mention two right here. The first reason that moral relativism is problematic is the problem of chaos. And this is exactly what you see in, in the book of Judges here. It's simply unlivable for everyone to do as they please. If my version of the good life, if I'm being true to myself, means that I murder people, then it doesn't work for us to have moral relativism. This kind of chaos means that no one can thrive or even survive. But let's say you want to add a caveat to it. You want to qualify it a little bit. To each his own, maybe, as long as you're not hurting somebody else. Well, let me just tell you something. When you do that, you've actually introduced an objective moral standard into the equation. To each his own, except for don't hurt anybody. That applies to all peoples at all times. And to have an objective moral standard, you have to have an objective moral law giver. You have to have somebody who is a law above the law, who can say to all peoples, at all times, in all cultures, every single person, do not hurt others. And if you have that kind of person, that kind of objective moral lawgiver, that is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about God. God must exist for that kind of thing. But this individualized moral relativism, this is problematic not just for the problem of chaos, it's problematic because it seems to require a kind of moral omniscience. So let's say I say, uh, to each his own as long as you're not hurting anybody else, right? That would be pretty common, right? Am I, am I on the right track here? In, your, in our culture, people would say, like, as long as you're not hurting somebody else. That standard seems to require that I have knowledge of everything that will result of my behaviors. Do you see what I'm saying here? Let me give you an example. Let's say you own a house, and you're in debt, Okay? That's plausible. If you own a house, you probably are in debt. But let's say you have some other debts that are not house-related. And you're ha you, you know that if you sell your house, you can get out of debt. Seems like a good idea, right? Like, maybe, maybe not always, but sometimes maybe that's the right thing to do. So you sell your house, you pay off all your debts, and then the housing market goes way up. But as the housing market increases in value, your child also gets sick. And you have to have some money to pay for treatment for your child. Well, you don't have anything to borrow against. You don't have any assets to use as collateral to get treatment for your child. So it turns out that you did something that you thought was best, but it ended up hurting your child. Do you see what I'm saying here? It requires that I should know everything that would happen from my actions. If I say to each his own, as long as you're not hurting somebody else, gosh, I have to have omniscience to know that the housing market was going to go up and that my child was going to get sick. You see how this is problematic? 
Plus, my little thought experiment, it implies that you don't just have a duty to avoid harming others, but that you might have a duty to provide active care for others, in this case, a child who's sick. That's a different kind of moral principle. So some people, what they like to do is they like to push past this kind of individualized moral relativism and say, okay, this is problematic, I get it. Let's talk about cultures then. And they'll say, what is moral differs from culture to culture? To where you as a Westerner, you can't say to another culture, you're wrong, right? And that's, you get where this is coming from, right? It's out of an attitude of trying to be like tolerant of people and we don't want to be all, uh, walking around all the time saying, hey, you're wrong about stuff like, and making people feel bad, right? We don't want to do that. And so people will say, well, let's just opt for the cultural model. What is moral differs from culture to culture? So you and your culture, you can't judge another culture. Well, this is actually really problematic too. I mean, think, think about the question of which culture's rules should apply. See, in Israelite culture, they say it's wrong to rape and murder. But in Benjamite culture, there are times when they protect rapists and murderers. Which culture's rules apply? Benjamin is a part of Israel, but it has its own subculture as one of its tribes. Which culture's rules apply? Or think about the fact that there's thousands of Burmese that live in Denver here. There's a very, very strong immigrant community of Burmese who, who, who've moved here of avoiding uh, hardship and, and war. When they come here, do their culture's rules apply for them? Burmese rules, cultural rules. That, that you would say this is typical of Burmese culture. That's what their morality is. Or do they obey American rules? What about their children? When their children become citizens here, whose rules apply? Do you see how this is problematic? So which culture's principles should one follow? Another problem with cultural relativism is the reformer's dilemma. So let's say I'm looking at my culture and I say, this is a problem. Well, actually, if I'm the one who calls out my culture for its norms, I am a moral reprobate. Think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against the Nazis. He says, this is not how it should be. We should not be murdering Jews. We should not be murdering homosexuals in Roma. We should not be murdering re religious minorities. Well, in German culture at the time, what was the, the, the moral thing to do was to obey the government and to participate in the final solution. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer is actually a moral reprobate. 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 That's a tough one to get out. He was actually, he was uh, deeply problematic for them. Or think about Dr. King. He looks at American culture and says, yeah, the norm here is racism, but this is not okay. He's actually somebody that we should fear and cast aside. See, according to cultural relativism, these men were evil because they went against their culture's versions of what is good. The final pro problem with cultural relativism is that we tend to believe in a law above the law. At the trials at Nuremberg, at the end of World War II, when, when the, the Nazis were being tried as war criminals for their participation in the final solution, the, the prosecutors had a difficult time figuring out how to try these men. They knew they were guilty of murdering Jews and homosexuals in Roma, but they, they didn't know, they couldn't try them against German laws because German laws wouldn't really apply. They, they, men would be innocent of any crime. So throughout the trial, the prosecutors appealed to a law above the law. They said what these men have done is not disobeying their own national laws. They've disobeyed the moral law that is above countries and above nations. That's what they're guilty of. See, moral relativism's failures are many, and they're incredibly problematic but they point to the fact that we're actually looking for a law above the law. That humanity has a deep need for objective moral justice that only God is in the position 
to bring. We're going to close here in the next few minutes, but in this sermon, I've made some philosophical arguments. I hope that's okay. That's what you get when, <laughs> when I'm around. But at the end of the day, you need to look internally. And I do too. Whenever we look at stories like this, whenever we look at this kind of, these kinds of ideas, you need to look at your own posture towards the law that's above the law. See, the children of Israel, they're guilty of intense hypocrisy, right? The people of God, sometimes, people who call themselves Christians, sometimes we're guilty of incredible hypocrisy. What we need to do is we need to recognize that we need a king. And we need a king who rules inside of our hearts. See, these people in Israel, they worshipped God with their lips, but he was far from their hearts. In their hearts, they had no king. They had no authority but their own desires. Each one did as they saw fit. And hopefully you see a little bit of yourself inside this story. I do. I recognize that I'm good at looking like I have it together. I'm good at looking like a responsible person. I'm good at looking like a good neighbor and a good coworker. But there's times when I realize that I'm broken because I'm acting as my own leader. I'm living as if I'm the king. I might even call myself a Christian. I might have others think that I'm basically a good person. But inside, I'm broken. See, God knows that we need a king. We weren't made to go with the principle to each his own. Life doesn't work that way. And when we do this, human society starts to break down. When we do this, when we live according to this principle, to each his own, we start to see brokenness after brokenness after brokenness. We see families that just shatter apart. We see companies that get involved in insider trading and in deep kinds of, of, of scandals. We see the Me Too movement. Thankfully, that arose in, in response to people who were living out the principle to each his own. When you live in this kind of world where everybody gets to decide who the king is, then you have all kinds of problems. And so what we need is a king. And we need to see, friends, that we have deep brokenness even in ourselves. And that it's possible for each of us to pay lip service to God. I believe in God. I'm a Christian. It's, it's possible for us to pay that kind of lip service, but to have our hearts be deeply alienated from God. And this is why Jesus is so important. See, with Jesus, you can have real healing in your heart so that you're able to have God be your king. See, Jesus heals our hearts so much that we're able to say, God, I want you to be my king. Jesus heals our rebelliousness so that we're able to live in and have the benefits of God's kingdom. Jesus heals our sinfulness so that we're able to obey God's laws. And Jesus heals our wounds so that when other people have lived the principle to each his own and we're the victims, Jesus can bring his healing touch to you and to me. So with this, I'd like to invite you to the table of communion. Can I have the keys up? See, it was on the very night that Jesus was betrayed that he shared a meal with his friends. It was on the night that Jesus was the victim of someone else's violence and greed that he welcomed us into a world of healing and forgiveness. This is what Jesus said. While they were still eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and with it, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.